HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. All right, it's Thursday, one o'clock, and you are tuned into the Farm Report. Brought to you by the Heritage Radio Network. And I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on a beautiful 50-plus degree day in the middle of February. A little crazy. And we are on the line with Sherry Shaver of Beaverkill Trout Hatchery. Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing great. Are you guys getting some of this lovely sunny weather up in the Catskills? We are. We did have a nice little snowstorm early this morning that covered the ground, and then it cleared off, and it's sunshiny here, and it's about 40 degrees. Oh, lovely. So we are kind of continuing a a series of shows where we're we're talking to different producers from the Catskills region, and... You know, your your name and the Beaver Kilt Trout Hatchery has come up in a couple different conversations I've been having over the last few weeks. And I thought we'd start off the show um, by learning a little bit more about, you know, you and how, how you guys got started growing trout. Okay, uh, the Beaver Kilt Trout Hatchery was spawned in about 1963 by my great-grandfather, Fred D. Shaver. Um, he had a vision, I guess because we will be in business for 50 years next year. Wow. uh, We have five generations of the family that's worked with trout since he started. That's uh, that's exciting. I mean, and I mean, I don't know a ton about the the history of fish farming, but I have to assume that in, 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 you know, the early 1960s, was that kind of a bold move on his part? I mean, how did the idea even occur to him? Do you know? Well, he was actually the caretaker for a private trout fishing club on the Beaverkill River and uh, took an interest in the, the trout. He was an avid fisherman and outdoorsman, hunter as well, and um, took an interest in monkeying around with hatching out trout. And I'm thinking that initially he had gotten eggs in from a hatchery in Pennsylvania and started hatching them out, although I believe he may have worked some with some wild brook trout and built a small hatchery building on the uh, fishing club's property up there with uh, some 
ponds outside and started from there. And it wasn't until probably the 70s that we actually moved the whole operation down in its entirety onto our 200-acre farm, uh, which was a former dairy farm right up until the late 60s, I believe, we went out of the dairy farm in business. Wow, that's like I feel like such a common story with people that you talk to who are doing kind of interesting stuff throughout New York State is, is it was once a dairy farm and is now transformed in some other type of agricultural production. So how about yourself? I mean, it sounds like you grew up uh, in the trout, trout hatching world, but was it obvious to you from the time you were a small child that you would stay on, or did you struggle with that decision? No, actually, I always was around with my dad and my grandfather and great-grandfather plus my whole family though i have um two brothers and a sister we were just i mean we were always going on fish deliveries when we were little and that was since we're we're 14 miles from any town here so kind of had to entertain yourselves (laughs) whether it be going out in the fish ponds in your shorts and wading around or whatever and um Actually, I went to school uh, in Waverly, West Virginia for horse training and riding instructing and came back from that. And my dad says, you want to go to work for me? And how could I say no? The rest is history, (laughs) as they say. Yes. So maybe you can kind of help paint a a, a visual picture for our radio listeners of what exactly uh, a fish farm uh, um, looks like and and what type of scale you guys are are talking about. I'm just get just a general sense of, um, you know, how one if were to go about if I were to move up to, you know, a 200 acre dairy farm, what are what what would I kind of need to do to get started? Water supply is the key to the whole operation. Um, we are blessed with some marvelous springs on our property that are gravity feed. That, therefore, we don't have um, the overhead of electricity on that. Uh, we also have some wells and uh, Alder Creek that actually runs right by our hatchery. So good water is the, the key to the whole thing. Um, the overall, if you were to, I'm trying to tell you about the hatchery down here, we have a building um, that is fed by spring and well water, and that's where all the hatching takes place. We just got done hatching out probably about, I would say there's 200,000 baby trout in there right now. Wow. Uh, there's 13 what I call vats that the water runs through that the little trout are all into. And that water from there then spills out into a um, concrete raceway, which is home to the brown trout that we hatched out last year at this time. And they're probably, well, five to six inches long. And below that, there's another set of five earthen ponds. And then there is another 12 earthen ponds beyond that on this side of the farm. And then if we go over on, across the road onto the other side of the farm, we have a set of concrete ponds over there that is home to the brook trout we hatched out last year and the rainbows and golden rainbows. And there are five dirt ponds over there with all full of fish. Wow. So 
Maybe starting back at the beginning in, in the area where you're hatching out. So you were working, it sounds like, with a couple different types of trout. So you mentioned brook and rainbow. Right. And we it, raised brook trout, brown trout, rainbow trout, and golden rainbow trout. And can you tell me a little bit about what kind of what's the difference between the three? Okay, the brook trout would have been native to this area, and you still can catch wild brook trout in some of these streams. Um, they like really cold water. Um, they're the ones that they had so much trouble up in the Adirondacks with the acid rain affecting those because they just can't stand any kind of pollution. Um, brown trout, I think, were imported from Europe back in probably the... 50s or whatever, and um, they're the the hardiest of all the trout. They'll take the warmer temperatures. Um, they're the the best for river stocking, lakes. Um, they're just aggressive. They will. They're very cannibalistic. They'll eat pretty much anything that gets in their way. <laughs> they're very smart. Um, once you hook a brown trout, you're going to be a while before you hook it again. That's why they get so big, because they're so smart. And they tend to, like we stock a lot of uh, the rivers around here, they tend to stay where they're put, even in high water, so that they're around for a few years after they're stocked. Uh, Rainbow trout are um, the fastest growers of the three trout. Um, We can get an inch a month on those in, in good conditions. They are very tasty to eat. They are the friendly, friendliest fish. Like as in the, when we're feeding all the fish around there, they're the most lively, jumping out of the water, what have you. Uh, the golden rainbow trout are actually native to the Rocky Mountains, West Virginia, and they look like a, they're gold, like a goldfish, but they're a trout. They're beautiful. Uh, they grow very well, too. The only problem with those is they're more, they're easier for the birds to pick out. We have quite a bald eagle population around here, and they they really like to pick on our goldies. <laughs> right. I guess they like shimmering from above, right? Right. Um, so when you um, are in the hatching process, do you hatch out... Um, you know, it's like different, uh, the different types of fish all go in a, a certain cycle. So like all 200,000 that you just hatched out are all the same type of fish. And then you would move into, you know, go from brown to brook to rainbow. Or do you do them in kind of batches at the same time? I mean, how do you kind of manage working with the different, with the different types? Um, well, they, when the eggs come in, meaning when the, the females are ripe and they're ready to spawn... Usually it's in stages like our brook trout will come in first. So we'll take those eggs first and then we'll set aside um, a section of the the hatchery with like say six different vats for them. And then when the brown trout come in, we'll take those. And then when the rainbow trout come in, we'll take those. So it's all our, our, um, with the egg, when the eggs come in depends on what the weather conditions for the year have been. Like last year we were so we had so much rain that we were actually tanking eggs here before Labor Day. Um, 
Now, I've seen it in times of when we've had a drought that it wasn't till let's say, the end of October when we were taking the eggs. So everything we do is controlled by nature here pretty much. Okay, so and when the when so you guys are harvesting eggs from fish that are already on your like on the farm essentially. You're not buying in eggs, right? We're taking all from our own brood stock. And you know, forgive me, I'm going to belie some ignorance here. Can you take the eggs without killing the fish? Or yes. okay, yes, yep. There's almost zero mortality when we're taking the eggs, unlike salmon. That you've probably seen on TV where, um, well, even up on Lake, Lake Ontario, when they go to spawn, there's such a high mortality that there's just dead fish all over the place. That's not the case down here with our fish. Okay, so you're able to harvest the eggs and then and you hatch them out, and they are in the vats, which I'm assuming are something like an above-ground pool, basically? They're, a vat is like a trough. Okay. And um, they're up, they have screens in, you know, to keep the fish in the vat. And um, the water runs in the top, comes down through that vat, goes down a hole, and drops into another vat. Okay. And then goes out. And how long are the fish kind of staying in this first area? They will be in there until we can get more fish moved around from the con- all the concrete raceways that we have fishing now will be transferred, those fish will be transferred out, then those raceways will be steam cleaned, disinfected, and then filled back up, and then we'll move the fish from the hatchery into their new clean home. Okay. And while they're in the hatchery, um, what, I mean, how are you feeding them? What do the fish eat? Well, it's like um, our fish food is a, comes in graduated sizes. So right now, this stuff that they get is almost like a dust. Like you just uh, shake it. Like be like similar to like pepper, I guess you could say, and just shake it on top of the water, and they come up and eat. And then the water, I'm assuming, you know, there's like, I'm assuming there's a, you know, a constant kind of inflow, outflow of the water. Yeah. So, I mean, I know one of the other issues with, with uh, farm fishing that you hear a lot about is kind of the waste products of the fish and how that impacts um, the area where they're raised. And so how do you guys deal with that on the farm? And is it different for different stages? Yes. Well, we, inside the building, we siphon a lot of it out of the bottoms, discard it outside into a pile. And then in our other ponds outside, we do a lot of pumping. We have a trash pump. And um, I still have horses down here on the farm, so we try to fertilize the fields as much as we can, you know, because we use the hay, the grass, whatever, for the, the animals. Right. So then you ha- can kind of work with something of a of a closed system. You don't. You're not at a point now where you're like. I mean, is it something that you could sell essentially? Like they sell manure. Oh, I mean, I'm sep- sure we could. Yes, we could. That's another avenue to pursue one day. When we get busy down there, we have just all we can do to hang on and keep going. Yeah, I'll bet. So, so the the so the fish go into the from the hatchery into the into the concrete raceways, and they're in that area. And what's kind of happening while they're in there? I mean, why not go right out into the pond? Because they're too small, they're too fragile, and they're more susceptible to pick up viruses and different things. 
plus we have such a, a prey population with birds and everything else that they're actually covered with um we have uh, netting that goes over top of the concrete raceways and on some parts of the farm we even have to have electric fence around to keep the bears out we've got everything it likes trout everyone but, loves a fish dinner huh yeah everybody's at our house here <laughs> so they go from the raceways out into the ponds and it sounds like there's a couple different kinds you said an earthen a concrete and right. then is a dirt pond separate from an earthen pond or it's the same thing okay yep and all these ponds all through the generations have been built by the family um this was all laid out by you know my father grandfather and great-grandfather and and well, i mean as far as aside from just kind of digging a big hole in the ground i mean what does it essentially take as far as maintaining a, a man-made pond water supply um we've got we have screens um well there's like shoot the water goes from one pond and drops to another pond so you need to have a certain um slope you know um because you need a pitch going from pond to pond okay so that the water will move without you know you're not carrying buckets from one pond to the next so that it moves naturally plus we get the natural aeration as it goes from pond to pond therefore we don't have to um, have an overhead of oxygen and all that stuff like a lot of other hatcheries do awesome well i want to tuck into a little bit more about how you guys kind of keep those ponds healthy and that water good for growing the fish but we're going to take a, a short break and then get into that when we come back okay Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. We're back. You're listening to the Farm Report, and we are on the line with Sherry Shaver of Beaverkill Trout Hatchery. So, Sherry, you've you've mentioned this a couple of times throughout the show: the importance of water to your uh, fish farming operation. And I wondered uh, if you could talk a little bit. You know, you guys are located up in the Catskills, and how you know essentially that region shapes what you're able to do. Well, we're thankfully quite protected. Um, as far as any pollutant, pollution, uh, development, what have you going on where we are here, somehow that happened. Um, the biggest problem we have 
we have a state-owned lake above us, and unfortunately that's not managed quite the way it should, and um, it seems to get a lot of traffic in the summertime up there. With um, one portage on and 100 people, it just doesn't seem like a workable situation to me. That would be our biggest problem that I can foresee as far as water quality would go here. And the water that you guys are that that you guys are getting onto the farm, you said, is from the well, and then obviously from the Beaverkill River. And no, actually, or, we don't take any water from the Beaverkill. The Beaverkill runs sort of parallel to our operation. Okay, we're on a tributary of Alder Creek. Okay, and so that doesn't impact us. What did impact us a lot last year is we had such high water all pretty much all summer long. And when we had the Hurricane Irene in the fall there, wow, it was the highest water I've seen since about 1969 here. Oh, wow. And and so the high water is a problem because? Because it, we need to keep all of this. In between each pond, there's screens that go from pond to pond. And when you get a lot of rain, wind, whatever, they tend, they plug up from leaves and just water turbulence. So we have to keep all the screens raked down. But the, the creek itself was spilling over its banks, as was the Beaverkill River, which was getting dangerously close as it flooded up to our property line. And also the water pressure backs the creek that we're on up. The water has nowhere to go coming out of Alder Creek, so you get a back pressure okay. of water because there's just so much water and has nowhere to go that it was pushing up into our lower pond system. Thank gosh things they stopped when it did. Yeah, that must have been a little harrowing. I mean, essentially, there's probably, I mean, is there much you can do other than, like, cross your right. fingers and hope it doesn't get any higher? You pray a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that, I'm glad that it, you know, was maybe just like a little bit of excitement, but nothing long-term or lasting as far as right. damage. Compared to um, what happened in other areas in New York State, we certainly got off easy, really. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about maintaining plant, you know, pond health. So you had mentioned that, you know, because of the the way that you have your system set up, you guys don't have to worry about um, putting in oxygen. Or can can you talk a little bit about, you know, in re- in regards just generally growing fish? Like, how what are some of the inputs that people use, and, and what do you guys do, and how is that maybe different from other farms? Well, as far as um, when we do have an oxygen problem, which we, we very well could, I'm, I'm foreseeing a, a drought this summer because we've had not hardly any snow. We'll not get the uh, melt-off or anything come springtime around there unless a lot of things change before then. We put in aerators, artificial aeration if need be. Um, we try to pump more water from different sources on the farm. And if we have to, in extreme cases, we can put in oxygen diffusers and run oxygen. But that's a, just a temporary situation. Because what, I mean, what is it that fish need in order to kind of grow? Oxygen. Oxygen and then, the f- you're, and then feed, right, essentially? Yep, oxygen, feed, and water temperatures no higher than 
67. That's pushing it right there. Yeah. Trout can't take warm water. And you said it's different amongst the different types of trout. Some of them, which was it that likes it a little cooler? The brook trout. That's why we keep them on one side of the farm that's fed by all spring and well water. Where the other side of the farm, we use springs well and we take in some water from the creek. Okay. Maybe you could kind of take us through, you know, what would be a typical day for you on the farm? Like, what are your, essentially, like, the chores and the stuff that you have to go through to keep things running? Well, on a daily basis, the main order of business is to get down there in the morning, make sure the water is running um, through the whole operation. Right now, inside the hatchery building with all the babies in there, making sure that the valves don't get plugged up with any silt or sediment coming off from the springs. And just cleaning screens, um, just checking everything, and then feeding everything. It takes about probably two hours a day to do that right now. But the end of March, we'll jump into high gear here and start preparing orders to be shipped out to Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, all over the state. In preparation for opening day of trout season here in New York is April 1st. Okay. So, so then I will have a crew of probably three to four guys, um, two drivers, just driving truck, delivering, live haul, that is, live delivering wow. to different areas of streams, ponds. We do a lot of uh, trout fishing derbies. It's everybody's got to have their fish in before the first. Okay, so that's kind of crunch time on the farm. I just want to back up for a quick second. How long does it take the trout from the time they're hatched out to the time they're kind of ready to go into market? Um, rainbow trout would be the fastest growers. We could get them, um, if we have ideal conditions, to 12 inches in a year, maybe even bigger. Um, you're looking at a good year on all of them to get them to a marketable size. We don't sell anything under six inches long. So um, within a year, we would have them up to six inches, some bigger, some smaller. Okay. And now you, so it it sounds like you guys are selling to to other stream. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little unclear where where you're selling fish in, into and kind of how, how that works. So it doesn't sound like you're just you know down at a farmer's market or selling into a shop, but you're also selling live fish to stock other, other streams and, and ponds and areas kind of in the region. Is that right? Right. Most of our business is live haul, live delivery to private fishing clubs, which there's a very large population of those on the whole Beaverkill River and most of your rivers around New York State, um, private lakes. So we deal all privately. Um, and just the average Joe that's got a backyard pond, a lot of people buy trout, put them in their pond, feed them, and then they will catch them out at their leisure and Yeah, no, my grandpa does that. It's always a treat to go back home to Michigan and have him whip up some trout from the pond. Um, So I'm just curious in um, in these areas, you know, this these private uh, streams or ponds that that you're stocking. I mean, is there a reason that the trout don't kind of self? 
propagate? I mean, do they need do they need some other type of management to sur- survive in the wild, or is it just like the the volume at which they'd be able to replace themselves is not um, in line with kind of how quickly they're being taken out, or or why yeah, is there kind of a need? The natural predators, uh, blue herons, ospreys, eagles, bears, raccoons. Uh, a lot of these private fishing clubs, the members pay a lot of money to belong to these clubs, and of course, people want to catch fish. That's the idea of the whole thing, right? You know, and it's a great sport. Sure. What I mean, what are I, I mean is I know growing up on Lake Huron, there was always a lot of um, you know salmon fishing that happened kind of in my backyard, and and. You know, size was always kind of the bragging right. You know, whoever can catch kind of the biggest fish was the best fisherman. How, how is that? Is that similar for trout? I mean, and if so, like how big can they get, or what's like a trophy trout kind of look like? Uh trophy trout. It depends on who's telling the story. I guess <laughs> anything over oh sixteen inches probably would be considered a trophy. We have trout down here on the farm that are. Probably 25, 26 inches long. Wow. And now do you, are, are you still eating trout? Is it something that still makes its way to your dinner table? Not mine, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, I also do, uh, I have my own little smoking business as well, and I smoke trout um, kind of on the off of the trout stocking season runs hot and heavy from the end of March, let's say, to the end of June. Okay. We pretty much have, unless, you know, it's an ideal summer where it's cool and we have a lot of rain, then we can we can continue stocking. But then the restaurant, farmer's market business takes picks up. Usually right after Memorial Day, things start to come back to life around here as far as the restaurants go. Okay. So we'll be delivering fish to restaurants, and I also do a farmer's market, two farmer's markets here, one in margaretsville at the pack attack and, and one in calicoon on sundays um selling fresh trout and smoked trout and smoked trout so then do you guys have a, a fish processing i mean on site i'm assuming how, how do you do you just gut them or do they go in whole i mean how does i mean how does one like you know kill a fish on a fish farm and then make its way to market like from the pond to the market essentially um, we pretty much throw them in a cooler of ice, take them for a little ride around the farm, come back and clean them. <laughs> okay. And that's um, then they would be on their way, and they're dressed and put on ice. Everything is ice, ice, you know, yeah, quality. Just, you know, transitioning the water into yet another form. Right. So if, if someone wanted to, to purchase some of your trout, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, they can call the farm. Um, <clears throat> do you want that phone number? Yeah, sure. It would be 845-439-4947. We also have a fish for fee or fishing preserve on the farm down here. That's where people can come and they do not need a fishing license to fish there. Just bring your own pole, your own bait. Uh, the pond's open Saturdays and Sundays from 8 to 5. And we have one large pond that they can fish in. 
Oh, we nice. Also, <clears throat> we also have a roadside stand there where we sell uh, the smoked trout and fresh trout. If somebody was not successful at catching, we certainly will make sure they have fish to take home with them. And what kind of bait is it for trout? Uh, worms and bobbers work the best, especially when you're if you're bringing children. The less hooks, the better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, spinners are effective. Brings me back to some other childhood memories that were less pleasant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Sherry, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to get a chance to talk with you, and, and we'd love to have you on again um, maybe later in the season to talk about how things turned out for you and what the weather ended up doing uh, this year. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back on the line with the lovely ladies of Good Food Jobs, so stay tuned. bringing it back and we are on the line with taylor Cocalis of good food jobs taylor how are you i'm oh good your line is a little spotty i'm not sure if maybe you can try and move to another spot we'll give it a chance to uh okay. clear up you let me know if you can hear me can you hear me now? yeah that's coming through a little better so we uh just want to do a quick shout out you guys are launching your very first good food jobs fair in collaboration with just foods tomorrow so i was wondering if you could give us some of the highlights that people can look forward to um yes yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't it, it's still pretty scratchy i'm sorry <laughs> i like we will pursue in our quest for a good food job uh, once we get a good land con- or line con- connection, I guess. Um, yeah. 
Oh. Okay, sorry about that. I literally just ran right into the middle of the street. Hopefully, this will be better. Well, talk um, quickly. But yes, Good Food Jobs Fair is happening in conjunction with the Just Food Conference tomorrow. So we'll be having 46 awesome hand-picked food-related businesses and organizations that will be tabling, um, telling everyone about the opportunities that they have available both currently and in the future and sort of cultivating uh, respect and appreciation for all the good work that, that everyone's doing and really putting a face-to-face interaction with what usually happens online on GoToJobs.com. So we're super psyched about it. That's exciting. So, um can people still uh, join the job fair? Are tickets available yet? Or um, Unfortunately, it's completely sold out and has been for a week. So we've Wow, had a congratulations. Lot of, uh, yeah, it's great. We're also really saddened because there are dozens of folks who have reached out desperate for tickets. But I've been telling everyone, some, some enterprising job seeker has got to start a... Uh, like a meetup at a bar near the near the conference and call it the Good Food Jobs Unfair and protest that there <laughs> weren't more tickets available and get a little networking going on themselves. Well, in the meantime, they can definitely pass some time perusing your website. Can you just give us a, a quick overview of what what's available through the website that people are going to have access to kind of all the time if they can't make it to the job fair? Surely. So you can always check out goodfoodjobs.com. Right now we're averaging a little over 500 active jobs on the site at any given time. Anything from different um, opportunities in agriculture, nonprofit, media, culinary. So really quite a broad spectrum of opportunities available uh, and growing by the day. Uh, in a little over a year and a half, we've posted over 3,200 jobs, Um, so there's lots of good stuff to come. Also, should anyone be really disappointed about missing out on the fair, please reach out early and often. You can reach us through the site or just email me directly, taylor at goodfoodjobs.com. I'm always happy to have phone chats or um, informational interviews or help people in whatever way we possibly can. Um, We're also, you know, having a Good Food Jobs table at the fair and creating a whole bunch of guides for people on how to find meaningful food work, how to conduct an informational interview, uh, and things of this nature so that we'll have them at the ready. So if anyone reaches out to us by email, we'll send those PDFs them. Awesome. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for joining us to do a quick shout out. Good luck tomorrow up at the Food and Finance High School. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Erin. Hope to see you while we're in town. Yeah, me too. Me too. So tune in next week on the Farm Report. We'll have Assemblyman Hakeem Jeffries and Anthony Butler of Bread and Life. So it should be a great show. See you next week, one o'clock Thursday on the Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.